Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, Ruben. Hi, Teddy. Do you know what's a tandoor oven or like a tandoori oven? Um, yeah, kind of. It's a giant pot that you can make like naan in. <laughs> You're right. It is a large clay oven that comes from the Indian subcontinent. So now imagine a bell-shaped vase, huge, and like you said, usually what chefs do, right, is that they stick bread to the sides of the oven. And so they make roti, they make naan, and in the center they roast meat, which is why you have things like tandoori chicken or chicken tikka. <laughs> now, if you've ever seen someone cooking with a tandoori oven, it's just really quite impressive. It's like quite fiery, you know? And now the thing is that if you've ever seen a commercial tandoor, you know it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Probably big enough to fit a small person into. Hi, I'm Teddy. And I'm Ruben. And welcome to A Briefcase. Today, we are talking about the 1995 Tandoor murder of Naina Sahni. This case starts with Naina Sahni. And Naina was born around 1966-ish. And because this case happened quite a while ago, we don't have a lot of information about her childhood But we do know that her dad worked in an ordinance factory and her mom was likely a school teacher. And by all accounts, they loved her a lot and it seemed that she had quite the wholesome family. It's also reported that she had siblings and she was the youngest child. What we also know is that she was the owner of a boutique. She had a pilot's license, like to fly planes. Mm -hmm. And... She was also a member of the Congress Party, so she was politically involved. (laughs) Unambitious person, (laughs) huh? (laughs) She's just chilling, right? (laughs) Okay, so she is a little bit of the camp high achiever. And not that it should matter, but she was also quite pretty. And so she was a hot, hot commodity. And in 1989, she was the General Secretary of the Delhi Youth Congress... And for some time, she was involved with another member called Matloop Karim. Mm-hmm. So the relationship didn't progress because her family didn't her family objected to it. But she's a nice person, and they continue being friends. And okay. again, she's beautiful, she's high achieving, and of course, who else should start being interested in her but the president of the Delhi Youth Congress? So in fact. He puts a lot of time and effort into pursuing her and he even helped her aunt, her auntie, with a land dispute. And so she starts dating Sushil Sharma. Now, Sushil is an interesting person. He was born in a middle-class family and his dad worked as a bank clerk 
and when he was in college, he was already politically active, and he got himself a reputation as a chakumar. What? A chakumar. Is that a good thing? <laughs> It means knife slasher. A knife slasher. Because he used to slash the posters of his student political rivals on campus. So that's like a little bit violent, right? But yeah, like, very specific uh, reputation to have. <laughs> <laughs> you are a slasher of posters. No, it's just like nice slasher. Right. Okay, but, but he was only slashing posters, right? No, he was not. Okay. It is also alleged that he had like a licensed gun, so it wasn't unlicensed, but he had a gun. Right. And he used to carry this revolver, and it is rumored. Okay, all this is speculation, but you know, like Indian tabloids, it's rumored that he had a reputation for kidnapping his student political rivals, which, to that, I will say, is an extremely red flag. Right. Yeah. I guess student politics in India is a lot more serious. <laughs> Given a lot of dodgy things has has happened in like NUS and NTU student politics in recent years. Are there any um, knife slashes? I mean, no, but there were no kidnappings either. But like, <laughs> damn. But anyway, I guess either she didn't know about this, or maybe she thought it was just rumors. We don't know lah. But they get married in Birla Mandir in 1993, and. It is alleged that once he got her locked down, he basically changed as a person. So on one hand, it's said that outwardly he would portray himself as like a very soft-spoken, non-smoking, good boy who went to temple. So like a soft boy, you know what I mean? Sure. But on the other hand, people would people who had worked with him in Youth Congress, they would like say. So when this came out, they like went to the newspapers and they were like. Oh, this Sushil, he was a little bit of a womanizer. He would purposely recruit women into office. He would, quote, he would never refuse any woman a favor, end quote. Wait, when, when what came out? When the wedding? Uh, when this case came out, when this, oh, when when it, this oh, case happened, okay. yeah. And so there are also many allegations, and this is specifically from an article in 1995. And the source happens to be Matloop, which is Nina's ex-boyfriend. So when interpreting the information, you can consider that as well. Mm-hmm. It is said that Sushil became quite the wife beater, and he would beat Nina and he would lock her up in their first floor rental apartment in the gold market. And what else is shady is that even though they allegedly had like an official wedding, right, a wedding that Sushil's parents allegedly attended, it seemed that he used to keep the fact that he was married a little bit of a secret. Oh right. And he justified this to her by saying that, "Oh, babe, you know, I'll acknowledge that we are married once I've made something of myself," which sounds very romantic, but seems it just seems like a way to seem single so he could go about as a bachelor. Yeah, and his parents, his his parents would do. His parents would support this because his dad would say things like, "Oh, I do hope that I see my son get married one day." Also, the parents didn't know. No, the parents attended the wedding, but they would still say things like that. Oh, maybe just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, it's quite strange. Okay, so it's like really shady, right? Yeah. It's also said that he was cheating, and these again, these are just all allegations. And I guess in the nineties, maybe they didn't have like as strict tabloid laws. 
Okay. Um, it said that he was cheating with a woman identified as Ila Jujuwala, and apparently she was previously married to a businessman. And how he seduced her apparently was by telling her that, oh, babe, I can get you a parliamentary ticket. So like telling her that by like dating him, she could have a chance to run for office, a ticket on mm. his party. And it's not confirmed whether or not Naina knew about this, but it's like implied. Right. And I think at the same time, I think I think Naina had enough of this life, you know, like a being a secret hidden wife, being pushed around, being hit. She was pretty. She was well educated. She had a pilot's license. Why? Why is she putting up with this shit? Mm-hmm. And so it is said at some point she tells him that like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna go to Australia to set up an export business. And now at the same time, he was just very suspicious of her. Which I think is just projection. Lah. He was just very suspicious of her and her friendship with her ex-boyfriend, Matloop. You know, if your wife is very close friends with her ex-boyfriend, it's a little bit sus. But like, if you are a shitty husband, you are more likely to project as well. Now we fast forward to 2nd July 1995. Now that night, Sushil comes home late. And Naina is on the phone and she's sipping a drink. And when he- she sees him walk through the door, she puts down the phone. And it said that she may have offered him a drink as well, like an alcoholic drink. Ooh, nice. And so Sushil is suspicious, because imagine you walk through the door and like somebody immediately puts down the phone. It's a little bit suspicious. Mm-hmm. And he's already suspicious of her friendship with Matloop, because Matloop, in this difficult relationship, has become her confidante. Confidant. Confidante? Confidant. Yeah. So he goes to the phone, and you know last time phones have like the redial button to get the last called number. Right. And it rings and it rings and it's Matloop. And so he's convinced that something is going on. And instead of having a discussion, instead of having a chat, instead of like maybe even just moving forward with a divorce, he pulls out his gun and he shoots her twice. And it's said that he puts her body into his car and he drives to the Yaruma River. But for some reason, even though it's the evening, there's quite a lot of traffic from both vehicles and there's quite a lot of human traffic as well. So there's actual people on the bridge. So he can't just take the body out and dump it into the river. And so now, we know he does have a little bit of clout because he's the president of the Youth Congress, right? Is it? Does it hold a lot of clout? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> president of the NUS... Student union, are you really? No, it's very like <laughs> I guess it's being like the president of like the WP or like the PAP youth wing or like uh, young Republicans, young, young Democrats. Yeah, maybe okay. Like you know that like maybe this person might be more involved. Got clout, got clout. So he drives to a restaurant called the Bagia Barbecue Restaurant, which isn't a failing restaurant. It's quite a popular restaurant. And this is how confident he is, which makes me think that he he really does have a lot of clout lah. Because he basically tells the manager of the restaurant, who is kind of his friend, Kishav Kumar, what he did, like the audacity. So I assume he basically said something like, oh, the body of my wife is in the car that I killed because I am totally convinced that she was cheating on me. You know, totally justified, you know, just bro things, right? right. And for some reason, um, his friend is like, oh... Alright, I and he sends away all the stuff in his restaurant and they bring Nina's body into the kitchen and they begin to set up. They get some wood, they get some fatty literature. <laughs> you know, like I assume like political brochures or like flyers. Right. And they use that for kindling. Okay, which makes me think that uh, this guy, this manager is also part of the party. And then they set a big fat fire. 
it's not confirmed whether or not her body was chopped up. Uh, people are leaning towards that she wasn't chopped up, that they just kind of like shoved her body into the tandoor, into the oven. Right. But they set a big fat fire, big enough that a vegetable seller outside the restaurant sees the flames and runs around and starts shouting like, oh my god, there's a fire, fire. Wait, so it's like a bigger fire than if you were to cook some... Yeah, it's right. a bigger fire than if you were going to make tandoori chicken. Right. Like, it's big enough that like people outside the restaurant are alarmed. Okay. Even though they look in and they're like, oh, it's a restaurant. You know, that's the thing. Sometimes when we talk about older cases, we sometimes think the police are a little bit un- incompetent or, or they don't have resources to that they have now. Mm-hmm. But no, in this case, the police were on the job. Now, a patrolling constable was alerted. Constable Ahmad Nazir Kunju and S.I. Rajesh Kumar. I think S.I. is like I.O. or something or sergeant or something. Senior inspector. Oh, yeah, senior inspector. <laughs> Okay, S.I. Rajesh Kumar. And so they are on the job. So they go to the restaurant. And Sushil and the restaurant manager, they, they see the mata, right? They see the police and they're like, oh no, we're just burning some old election posters because, you know, the election is over and there's no more use for it. But the police did not take their word for it. The police were like, hmm, sus, sus, sus. And they jumped the wall into the restaurant because they actually see the fire, you know what I mean? And then they they see Sushil and Kashaf like feeding the fire, like making it bigger and bigger, and they smell the body because at the end of the day, the human body is just a big chunk of meat. So they step closer because this is really suspicious. And I assume human body smells like different, you know, not like pork or anything. And then they see a human torso sticking out from the tandoor. Now, Sushil runs, he flees, and he actually manages to get away, but they were able to arrest Kashaf, the manager of that restaurant. And when this case first broke in 1995, there was a lot of information and there was a lot of sensationalizing, so including the rumors that the body was chopped up, that the body was butchered. Because of that, I suspect this misinformation is what might have led to the initial first autopsy being very wrong. Now, in the first autopsy, it said that Nina died from excessive bleeding and the police were kind of sus because they did find bullet casing in the apartment, in the first floor apartment that Nina and Sushil shared. Mm. And so they were like, no, 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 I don't think this is the case. So they actually took a second autopsy, a more thorough autopsy, autopsy, and from the x-rays, they found a bullet in her neck and another one in her head. Mm. And so they're like, no, this was a, a shooting. And they conduct a manhunt. And Sushil surrenders himself about eight days later on 10th June 1995. And at first when he surrendered in Bangalore, he was like, oh my god, why are you on a manhunt for me? I don't know anything about any murder. Right. I was on a pilgrimage. <laughs> sure. I was in Ashma, Jaipur, everywhere except Delhi. And then afterwards he was like, oh no, this is a political conspiracy to make it look like I killed my wife. Uh, but eventually he, ju- he does admit to murdering Naina. Oh. Yeah. Mm, strange. And in 2003, he's sentenced to death. And the sentence was upheld by the Delhi High Court in 2007 because, you know, he tries to appeal. Right. And then the but he admitted to a murder. Yeah, no, I think it's very difficult not to, given that A, they found the casings, B, too, too respectable police 
men saw a, a literal body being burnt mm. in the oven. And also they have a witness, the manager. The manager got like seven years, I think. Oh, maybe he ratted out the this guy. It's, it's like really hard to pretend, you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and also you have like the witness, Matt Loop, who probably attested to his, I guess, alleged violent behavior towards his wife before that. Right. Yeah, so that is motive. Mm-hmm. So, where were we? Well, that's not... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that's motive. Jealousy? It's like... Um, uh, Crime of passion. No, as in, it's like evidence of past bad behavior. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but okay, no, yeah, I, I see. So, yeah. 2003, at the end of trial, he's sentenced to death. He appeals, but it was upheld by the Delhi High Court in 2007. But then, in 2013, the Supreme Court, the Delhi Supreme Court, they look at it, and he was like, oh, well, this guy, if he committed a crime, it was a crime against his wife. It wasn't a crime against society. Um, so I guess it implies that he wouldn't just randomly reoffend against, like, the general public. Mm. Just that he was a shitty husband, and I suppose if he were to reoffend, it would be against another partner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know. Weak, I don't know how I feel, feel about this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what's interesting is that he appeals again and his lawyer says that this guy, he has no prior criminal history. I mean, no prior recorded criminal history other than a reputation of slashing posters and potentially kidnapping political rivals. Mm-hmm. But no, no criminal history <laughs> at all. <laughs> He's going to turn 60. So I think he was like 50, 50-something 50 in his mid-50s. Okay. If you were a judge, what would you say? When did he go into prison? 2003. Oh, oh 95, 95. When he was how old? Uh, I'm assuming, they don't say, but I'm assuming he's like around the same age. So like late 20s to early 30s. And then he was in prison for 20 years. 20-something years, yeah. Because he was just appealing. You see, this is testament to how slow (laughs) the (laughs) show process is. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Because if if it was anywhere a little bit more efficient, right? No, but the thing is, I don't think that a slow death sentence is a bad thing because like sometimes people are really like falsely accused and it gives them... No, no, I'm I'm quite sure there was deliberate on his part so that he could just prolong, he could, mm. you know, defer the death sentence. So he just keeps appealing. Maybe there's some uh, influence that he could exert to get... Externally the, also as yeah, well. Hearing pushback or whatever. But that's crazy. I've never heard of a, a capital pun- punishment case taking 20, 30 years to resolve. Yeah. So and guess so, what happens? Guess what happens? Hmm? Uh, okay, uh, he got hung. No, he's granted immediate release. Oh, for what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so like I when you do deeper research into the case, right, it says that he really had quite a lot of good behavior in prison. But I don't think good behavior should like cleanse you of such a heavy crime as as killing someone else. Yeah, I mean if it's a clear cut case of murder that was witnessed and premeditated and everything, I don't is it premeditated I, if in like the two seconds when she put down the phone and read out, she gets like shot? Well, no, so it's definitely it not accidental. It's definitely not accidental for sure. Well, yeah. So I think India's laws are similar to Singapore because our penal code is based on the Indian penal code. Yeah. Um, and if I'm not wrong, I, I, I'm trying to recall from <laughs> law school, but there's like a defense of provocation. So if you can show that 
you were provoked and you like you kind of lost control. Mm. Um, that can be a defense to murder, but I think it takes like super serious circumstances. Not oh, I heard that my wife <laughs> might have been on the phone with some dude, <laughs> yeah. and so I like I, I don't know if that would be sufficient. Um, yeah, no. So, but that's quite strange because if it was clear cut case of murder, which I don't know if it was, like I. It's so strange that him behaving well after that could let him escape like a mandatory death sentence. I know, right? <laughs> the only thing that I could think of like was <laughs> corruption. <laughs> yeah. But like, who knows? So he came out and he was all like high and mighty. He was like, all my negativity has been washed out by the sweat inside Tiha. And... I think I I feel very like conflicted about it because like part of me quite believes in rehabilitation lah, but not for murder. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I believe in rehabilitation for things like uh, drug abuse. Yeah, or like if like let's say you have a kid who is a little bit more predisposed to shoplifting, that kind of thing can teach one. Sure. But in terms of like things like rape and murder, I'm just like I don't think people like that really change. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. True. Because like to go to that extent, you must already have I wouldn't say something intrinsic, but it feels like something inside pushing you to it. <laughs> so this man he has quite a lot of audacity because now that he's out, he's obviously trying to sell his story to like movie movies and stuff, right? He's trying to sell his story to Bollywood. Oh he's still around. He's still around, yeah. Okay. So he literally was um in one of the articles, it literally was like, Oh, I'm in this city because I'm trying to sell my story to a producer. Okay. Yeah, and he also says things like, had I not committed the crime, I would have been a union minister today. That's, well, he's saying that now, uh, or, or during his case? Is it? Like, he's saying that now, like today. Oh, he's yeah. like, oh, if I wasn't in prison. Okay, so, so what? <laughs> I mean, so what? Yeah. Okay, so guess what's his day job now? Guess, 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 guess. Uh, he cooks tandoori chicken. <laughs> he's a couples counsellor. Oh, okay. Or like, Men with anger management. Right. Okay. Is it the best job or the worst job? Yeah, I don't know what to make of it. Thanks for being on the show, Ruben. Thanks, Daddy. I sound very nasal because I'm sick. Oh dear. I've been sick for like two weeks. Should go and see the doctor. I saw the the telehealth. I haven't seen the real doctor because our house is very ulu. <laughs> uh, it's a crisis. <laughs> On a side note, another crisis is that I've read all you listener comments that the audio on the last Halloween episode was on two channels and there were issues and that is completely my fault because I forgot to merge the, the two mono channels into like a single channel. Um, so I just re-uploaded the video so you should be able to hear both Carl and Wayne crystal clear so if you couldn't hear either of them correctly last time try again because now they are both crystal clear if not just drop me a DM and you can also try listening with like earphones because when I was editing it I thought it was already merged but it was not I was wrong Um, and this is the last week for you to vote for either Carl or Wayne as the winner of the scary story um, spook, spooky story scare off scare down yeah. <laughs> um, even though Ruben was not in the episode he was in the room listening yep Very and entertaining stuff it was good stuff 
Um, and I, I still owe them Toto tickets. I just bought them today because of the combination of being sick and both Ruben and I's work schedule being ridiculous, even though it's like November. Ridiculous, I swear. Ridiculous. On a side note, um, we also attended Halloween Horror Night last week at USS. Yeah. And there was a Indian-themed scare zone. <laughs> Which is very confusing. Azev, Ruben, and some lovelies family. And for context, all, we're all, I, I was going to say we're all Indian, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but collectively, um, none of us could recognize any of the ghosts. Yeah, it's, uh, they, yeah, they needed to explain what this Indian ghost was because nobody knew what it was. <laughs> if you are a person who just happens to know Indian culture particularly well and also attended Halloween Horror Night, um, please drop a DM and I might even make an episode on these ghosts specifically because so obscure. <laughs> yes. And so I think the scariest house for me that day was the rise of the matriarch. Um, my mother-in-law's house. Yeah, the mother-in-law's <laughs> house. Not just any mother-in-law, Peranakan mother-in-law. We also went into we went into all the houses, but like I don't know how I ended up being like the first in our group for the Grimm's house, and as a brave girl, but Ruben tried to push me into a monster. He like held my shoulders and like was like pushing me towards the the scare actor. And I think the scare actor was the wolf from the Little Red Riding Hood, Ruben. Was it? <laughs> I don't remember. It was a room with like a lot of like bodies hanging from the ceiling. So I think those were like supposed to be like the murdered three little pigs. Right. Bad, Ruben. Bad. But also just because of like the work schedule and being sick and Christmas coming up and us trying to figure out our holiday schedule as well. We're going to... We might go on holiday next week if we can get the time off. And also we have December booked, which is nice. So because of that, I think maybe for like the next couple of months, I might drop into a once every two week cadence so I can work on other life-related projects and kind of like take a break as well. And then, so, like, I suspect I'm low-key getting burned out because of all of this. So, I think I'd rather do, like, two long episodes with guests a month rather than, like, four low-effort ones. And I, I just prefer having guests on recently because it makes it a lot more fun and a bit less in a... a bit less like a second job, you know? <laughs> uh, but, like, I guess that will decrease the cadence a lot because then I have to, like, find people who are willing to, like... <laughs> Do this with me. <laughs> and oh, and Margaret had a baby. I don't know if it was announced, but Margaret had a baby. So, like, we, I guess we won't be hearing from her in a while. <laughs> Snaps for Margaret. Snaps for Margaret. Which means that, like, but I think it will be fun because, like, I might reach out to some of the other podcasting folk from other places. Having Colin Wayne was so fun, but, like, the setup was like, I, I literally had to use the equipment. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Wayne. <laughs> yeah. And as always, you can find us online at abriefcasepodcast.com or on Instagram at abriefcasepodcast. And do join us next week for... Another Briefcase. Boss is here! 
Military parents never miss a beat, and neither does the Johns Hopkins U.S. Family Health Plan. Built for every warrior in your family. With more than 40 years of service to military families, TRICARE Prime Benefits plus exclusive extras. Learn more at warriorsathome.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.